0: Say La360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and as always, I'm with my co-host, Bill Donahue.
1: Hello, hello.
0: And Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, guys.
0: You know, a lot of weeks we start joking around about how busy things are and how tired we are from the news, but uh, I think we really oversold that feeling not in if, previous
1: weeks. Not every day that uh chamber of Congress changes hands and it's like not even the top news item for Barely. like right. 18 right. hours. Not even.
0: So, I mean, obviously, we're going to get into all the big news. We're going to talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions resigning, and also a little bit about results from the midterm election, because that all happened this week. It feels like everything is happening. And then, at the very end of the show, we're also going to be joined by a Drinker Biddle attorney who headed up the firm's efforts to um, ensure the right to vote on Election Day. So, that'll be a a nice thing to end with after we get through all this crazy news.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did want to mention it on on top of this cascading news that we've already been talking about then, of course, this morning we heard Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized after she sustained some broken ribs in a fall in her office. Which yeah, is I kinda, mean, kinda you, to you
0: hate to hear that. Um, of course, everybody wishes her a speedy recovery. I think the
1: headlines it, were worse than
2: than it was, though, because it said I that she so. it said that she fell last night and then right. felt a little discomfort in the morning and went to the hospital. So it wasn't like she was rushed to the hospital trauma
0: on It also right. just right. does feel like a piling on of of. Um, of big legal related news events, sure, right? So, um, yeah.
1: And with that, we should probably just uh, probably just get on with it. I think. So, as I hinted already, the big news of the week was the midterm elections. Until it wasn't, <laughs> sure. <laughs> because on Wednesday afternoon, news broke that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had, uh, and here's where here's where we start parsing phrasing, uh, had had stepped down from his Attorney General post. At the request of President Donald Trump.
2: Does that constitute a firing? Where I come from... I'm going to go with
1: yes. Where where I come from, if your boss asks you to go and you go, (laughs) that's being fired. Right. Um, But the move came basically after many months of Trump... Openly questioning Sessions' decision to recuse himself from the Robert Mueller investigation into Russian interference in the presidential election.
2: He, he routinely referred to him as Mr. Magoo. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. was very
1: fun for a lot of news organizations to then have to define who Mr. Magoo was. Yeah, it's like let's let's be clear on that. Um so yeah, he was he was basically sore at Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia investigation and there are big implications for that investigation because of what happened this week. Um, but really, from the beginning, Sessions was never really on very solid legal footing. Um, Democrats, of course, fiercely opposed his nomination from when it was announced. He has um, a history of a very hardline conservative. Some people call him an ideologue. Uh, famously was denied a federal judgeship during the Reagan administration over a controversy that he made some Racist remarks. This is not the type of person that um, liberals and Democrats wanted running the top uh, law enforcement agency in the country. Um, But I mean, that's to be expected in our partisan time. Um, But then, of course, even Trump started to needle Sessions after he recused himself. And uh, I did like a I keyed a Jeff Sessions Twitter search uh, for Trump's tweets today. Hmm. And it's it's pretty fascinating to watch him just over a period of a few months just kind of make Backhanded, yeah, it was uh, bad. Just like swipes at Sessions, where he was just like, "Well, I don't know what's going on there at the Department of Justice." In quotes, like quotes <laughs> right. in the tweet. Um, he also one of my one of my favorite ones <laughs> was just a couple. Of, it was like a month ago when he was talking about. Um, how two Republican congressmen who we've actually talked about on the show, Chris Collins and Duncan Hunter, were indicted. And it was basically Sessions carrying forward Obama-era indictments. And he concluded that with, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, people his, – his job status was up in the air as, as much as like over a year ago. People sure. Were to, they're, they're, like the New York Times reported that he was maybe be dismissed. And so people have been on guard about this for some so time.
0: So this didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and, you know – we can speculate about what everybody's talking about. It came the very day after the midterms. Right. So it seems like Trump just waited until midterms were over to do what he wanted to do there. Yeah. Um, I mean,
1: parsing the parsing the motives of this White House is um, difficult to do at times. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that's where we're at. It really, I mean, it's, I mean, even, even for, as I'm saying that it, people had expected it, it somehow was unexpected and also expected, sure. like, over the last several months. I don't think as soon as Yeah, happened, maybe it that's expected. the thing, the, the, the timing was abrupt. Like hours after the midterms, So, uh,
0: You know, the thing we always do on this show, um, is look to the future, so Sessions is now gone, and we got, um... A somewhat surprising appointment to replace him. A
2: curious appointment,
1: yeah. Uh, the yeah, the surprise over him leaving quickly gave way to a new thing to discuss, and right. we'll talk about it right now. Um, so after Sessions uh, disappeared himself, or whatever, whatever we're saying from the Justice <laughs> Department, uh, Trump appointed a man named Matthew Whitaker, who has served as Sessions' chief of staff. To take the job, the attorney general job on on an acting basis, and if that sounds like a curveball to you, it is because there's a deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, who it's in his job title would seem to be in line. Right. For Staffers the, don't yeah. usually just take over, right? Yeah, it's right. very unusual. Whitaker is a chief of staff, which means he's like he's Sessions' like assistant. He helps him ke- keep his affairs in order and like plan his you know various policy initiatives and things like that. Um, but, you know, he is not a political appointee. He has not um, been he, he, he has not been vetted by the Senate for anything like that. So like yeah. at
0: first, this was just surprising, like, oh, you've picked that person. Um, but now it's sort of giving way to this next wave of commentary, which is. Is that legal? Like, can Trump do that?
1: Right. The Whitaker uh, appointment or whatever you want to call it has made waves for a couple reasons. We're going to talk about sort of who he is as a guy in a little bit. But from a strictly, like you say, legal standpoint, um, people are questioning whether or not you can actually pick somebody who serves at this level to have this very important job. In that case, um, I thought was most Explicitly laid out by former Solicitor General Neil Katyal and uh, big law attorney George Conway, who is, of course, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, um, in a New York Times op-ed today, Thursday. Basically, um, those two argued in the op-ed that under the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, um, that clause requires, quote, principal officers of the United States to be vetted and approved by the Senate. So, So yeah. So
0: it's that— It's what's a principal officer and were they vetted and approved by the Senate? So this guy, Whitaker, he wasn't necessarily approved by the Senate. Yeah,
1: I mean, they and they they mentioned this in the op-ed. He was a U.S. attorney uh, in Iowa and he was approved for that position in 2004 but there, of course, that's many years ago. And they say, yeah. like, you can't just rubber stamp a whole other Senate's vetting. A lot of things have changed since 2004. <laughs> you don't say. Um, but, yeah, and, and as to the question of what's a principal officer, there's all kinds of jurisprudence on that. But I think we could agree that the top... Uh, law enforcement official in the country would be such. And that's what Katyal and and uh, and Conway were arguing. And it's basically saying, you know, there's all different kinds of cases to make, but very clearly the guy was not vetted and approved by the Senate. Uh, and that makes him unfit and illegally uh, appointed as such. They wrote, We cannot tolerate such an evasion of the Constitution's very explicit, textually precise design. Senate confirmation exists for a simple and good reason constitutionally Matthew Whitaker is a nobody
0: Ooh. Uh, all right well let's actually take it from there because I think a lot of people like me I didn't know who he was he is in fact in many ways an unknown well
1: he's a nobody weren't you listening just yeah, now? I've, heard, no, yes. I've heard that
0: he's a nobody so <laughs> right. um, Bill I know you looked into this a bit and can yeah. explain who he is
2: yeah, I mean he was he was a he was a nobody nobody, uh even non-constitutionally before this, but um but it, it you You're know definitely somebody now. But I mean we've learned a lot over the last twenty four hours. Um so most recently, he was Sessions chief of staff. He was described in press reports as sort of a White House loyalist within the DOJ, that he was the eyes and ears of the West Wing over there. And that a lot of times the West Wing would reach out to him rather than Sessions because they obviously weren't getting along with Sessions. Um, before that, he was in private practice for about a decade Um he was the U.S. attorney um, in the second half of the Bush administration. He also ran for and lost the Republican senatorial primary in Iowa back in 2014. Right. Um, as we've as we've discussed, his his background hasn't gotten a, the kind of vetting that you would normally get from an attorney general because mm-hmm. he hasn't gone before the Senate. We haven't had time to consider him. He was just a chief of staff that is now suddenly the head of the doj
0: so as the media does um everybody started digging in and he's getting a public vetting right now uh, he, he what are some things we've learned about his views and and how he might carry out this this job he's been
2: yeah so um one thing that's gotten a lot of traction is this um 2014 interview that he gave it was a, this q a format style thing when he was running for that iowa senate seat um, where he called the courts, quote, the inferior branch of the government and questioned the Supreme Court's ability to weigh in on the actions of the other two branches, <laughs> um, which is sort of what we think of
1: them doing. This interview, by the way, rules, just as a piece it's of It's good like, as a whole thing. Ju- just as a piece of casual reading. Yeah. I mean, it's enlightening. Um, so he, he was asked... Uh, the he was the asked,
0: inferior branch, I mean, that's pretty extreme. Well, you're going to see
1: well, why he said that. Yeah. Um, so
2: he was asked to name some of the worst... Supreme Court decisions. and
0: Okay, did he go with something like, people get asked this all the time, and the obvious answers are like, Korematsu, Dred, Dred Scott, Brown versus Board of Education. Any of those?
2: Quote, I would start with the idea of Marbury versus Madison. Oh,
0: come on. <laughs> That's <laughs> probably a
2: good place to start, and the way it's looked at, the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of constitutional issues. We'll move forward from there. All New Deal cases that were expansive of the federal government, those would be bad then all the way up to the Affordable Care Act and the
1: individual mandate, oh. end quote. Now, it's funny because okay, okay. I, I mean, you, you'll you hear Republican, you know, Senate candidates make cases against the New Deal and certainly against the Affordable Care Act. But I mean,
2: well, and the courts in general, like the, 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 that there is too much yeah, yeah, yeah. policymaking at the court. But that is a nuanced argument. Guys, <laughs> not that, guys. Guys, this is taking it back to Patient
1: Zero, Marbury. My v. Madison. Head
0: is exploding yeah. as a lawyer. This guy's an attorney. Yeah, he doesn't agree with Marbury versus Madison. Yeah.
1: which creates judicial review. I mean, if you happen to not know, I mean, right. the, the, the idea that courts it is can... the foundational ruling.
0: It is. Yes. It is. It's. It's arguably. The most important ruling. It's a weird, yes.
2: place, weird place to start. So the day kept getting weirder yeah, I was going to say, there was some other stuff. So um, it was uh, It was reported last year by the Miami New Times. Uh, hat tip to them because this was before his name meant anything. Uh, and it obviously took on a whole new meaning yesterday. But, um, but it was reported that Whitaker had served as a board member at, um, it was a, a quote, Invention promotion company that was sued last year and shut down earlier this year by the Federal Trade Commission as a scam that, quote, bilked millions of dollars from consumers.
0: Wow. Okay. That's not great.
1: Well, and also, like, okay, for whatever you want to say, like, you know, Maybe he was doing some weird stuff many years ago. It was last year, by the way. That's what stood out to me. All right,
0: well, let's talk a little bit more about this, because was this one of those things uh, akin to what you see commercials for on TV, where it's like, inventor, come to us with your thing and we'll help you? Basically,
2: and it's a big problem in the... It's a big thing sort of in the IP world is these scam programs. Um, So just to lay down the facts, Whitaker was paid to serve as one of several high-profile advisory board members at a company called World Patent Marketing, which was this Miami company that offered to promote people's inventions. You would pay them a few thousand dollars. They would say, we're going to go um, secure you a patent on this. We're going to promote it to early investors. We'll all get that you in the supply thing. chain. Like that, yeah. So according to an FTC lawsuit filed last year, the company did Almost none of that. Um, wow. Instead, it strung people along, saying, pay us a little bit more, pay us a little bit more. It did the fees part. That, oh, yeah, yeah. That part did, that. It did. yeah. Um, it, it basically stole people's money, offered them nothing in return, and then used really frivolous threats of legal action, including at least one actual lawsuit, um, to keep people from publicly complaining.
0: Okay. So, I I mean, because you and I are in this IP world all the yeah. time, this does come up periodically. Um but I think a little bit about, like, what does it mean to be on an advisory board? Because sometimes high-profile people right. sign on to things, and they're not not—they're not that involved. Do we know, you know, how much he knew about the shady dealings going on here?
2: Right. It's a good question, because if you are a former U.S. attorney or a former general or any of these things, you could be, like, sort of, you know, you can be asked to be on some sort of committee or something else, and you're not really doing anything. Yeah, you take like, a yeah, hands-on just, approach. It's
0: kind of like a spokes like role like you sort of agree and maybe you're not following along closely
2: right so you know whitaker's involvement in this seems a little bit more um a a little bit closer than that he um you know he's listed on their website as this advisor and he was paid he was paid about ten thousand dollars according to court records um but most importantly he these threats that that formed part of their of the FTC's main sort of thrust against this this scam at least one of them was authored by Whitaker. He sent this email to this guy who was going to complain to the Better Business Bureau and basically said, I'm a former U.S. attorney. I'm affiliated with this company. And if you make these complaints about the company, you're putting yourself
1: on the line for civil and criminal action. So, yeah, he's not just some ethereal board member serving in some kind of ceremonial, you know. Exactly. Place. Exactly. Yeah. So, that, so it,
0: that's pretty questionable. Um Uh, yeah i mean that gives you a lot to chew on just about who this guy is but i think what we're all sort of thinking as we continue this conversation is just all right what does this mean for Mueller, and how does whitaker going to view all of that and we have some indications right
2: we do um and i think we're going to talk about it in a little while what you know what might happen going forward but um but whitaker has weighed in on on what he thinks about the Mueller investigation and it's not positive um In a guest post for CNN in August 2017, uh, shortly before he joined the DOJ, Whitaker said that Mueller shouldn't be investigating Trump's family finances. Hmm. Um, He said, quote, this would raise serious concerns that the special counsel's investigation was a mere witch hunt. Um, you'll that, recognize that, that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Seen these terms um, somewhere, and uh, yes, even more, even more pointed. In a segment on CNN, um, Whitaker suggested that a hypothetical replacement for Sessions could defund the Mueller probe. Wow. "Quote: hmm. I could see a scenario where Jeff Sessions is replaced with a recess appointment, and that Attorney General doesn't fire Bob Mueller, but he just reduces his budget so low that his investigation grinds almost to a
1: halt." Well, and that oh, that that gosh. brings us to really the million-dollar question. So. We we began by talking about the fact that Sessions recused himself from the Mueller probe because he was an active participant in the Trump campaign. He stumped for Trump. He held, he held, he held right. meetings with various officials. So he he didn't think it was proper to oversee Mueller's investigation that was given to the deputy, Rod Rosenstein. But now th- there's new Not information anymore, with Whitaker. Right. Um,
0: yeah. So with Sessions out, that issue um, that made him recuse is gone. So it's now... Taken away from Rod Rosenstein and given to Whitaker uh, for all the reasons we've already talked about. Uh, Democrats and even some Republicans aren't happy about yeah. that prospect. So Nancy Pelosi, some other leaders, have already called for emergency hearings. They don't want to see Whitaker take over this. They say that um, he needs to recuse himself the same way that Sessions did. Right. So you had a lot of people saying that. You'd expect the Democrats, but you also had Mitt Romney saying it and then even susan new Co-
1: senator mitt romney yeah. yeah
0: and then even susan collins said she was concerned um that's a typical line from susan collins yeah. um so they pointed to what we've already discussed that whitaker has said on record that he thinks the Mueller investigation exceeded its scope
1: do we think do we have any reason to think he himself will recuse given the fact that he's obviously <sighs> weighed in on the propriety of this well, investigation uh
0: no so <laughs> a few things um trump as we talked about earlier, he held a grudge for a long time against Sessions right. because of recusing. So, yeah. the idea that Whitaker would do the exact same thing is a little implausible, I think. And then on Thursday morning, some of his associates were cited by other uh, news outlets saying that he had no intention of recusing.
2: But now, there was this new wrinkle that came out today, right? This this guy, Sam Clovis. What's the story with yeah. that? Yeah.
0: So Because the story isn't complicated enough, let's add in some more people. Um, it was reported uh, Wednesday that Whitaker's close friends with Trump's 2016 election campaign co-chair it's a guy named Sam Clovis mm-hmm. um, that guy's already testified before um, the Mueller grand jury so he's right in the thick of this yeah and Whitaker was the campaign chairman for Clovis's 2014 um, run for state treasurer in Iowa they're both from Iowa yeah
1: these guys all hang out is what we're yeah. trying to say these are these are these are some guys
0: they really do hang out because Clovis <laughs> has gone on record and said that Whitaker was quote, a sounding board for him during that 2016 campaign for President Trump.
2: So the argument is that that potentially because you know, because Clovis is so involved in the Mueller investigation, and they're
0: that, such good that friends, maybe that would
1: then even away from any of this other stuff that maybe he would have to recuse because of that. Right. Right. Well, but I mean, if we're pretty sure he's not going to recuse because that's kind of the whole that seems to be at least part of the reason he might have been appointed. What are the what are the hypotheticals here? What plays out? Are we ed- are we edging toward a constitutional crisis? Whoa, I don't know. Is that well, our first constitutional crisis? I don't have a buzzer. I I mean, we need a sound. We I don't had know. to say it though,
0: right? Because everyone's talking about it. The CC word, yeah. And honestly, maybe. Uh, I mean, I hate <laughs> to say it like that, but it's possible. So there's a few things that could play out from here. Uh, we're maybe on the precipice of that crisis because Mueller's still in place. So right. we got to see what happens. Either Mueller could be fired outright, Whitaker could try that approach, or... What is slightly more likely, given his previous comments, is that he just curtail the investigation in other Throws slightly up more blocks, subtle ways. Yeah, yeah, so he can do the the funding that we've talked about. He can mm-hmm. roll back Mueller's budget. He can also wait for Mueller to continue to do things, but just not approve a lot of them. So he could maybe stop Mueller from doing additional indictments. Um, he has mm-hmm. some oversight there. He could also wait to the very end and get Mueller's report and just not release it to anybody else because the report has to go to the attorney general yeah. first. So there's. Some problems there. He
1: also is just acting. We haven't, I, I don't think, maybe stressed that quite enough. It's um, true. And, and there, are, there are some names which I mean, we're at a very early stage of who it might be. But I mean, Whitaker is a placeholder now, but he's he, he's not just an incidental one, given all the all the yes. things that we've yeah. just laid out. So.
0: Um, I know because it's like the nexus of our two stories today where we've talked about um, this this stuff with Whitaker, but also we're going to talk a little later in the show about the midterms. Those come right together with this about what could the House do about this yeah. as the Democrats now have um, won the election and will soon take back control of that chamber. So they have a little bit of power. Um, Brandon Lowry wrote for us um, that attorneys have told him that House Democrats can try to subpoena Mueller and his work product. Mm-hmm. But even if that works, the House just can't bring criminal charges, right. so then it would just all go back to DOJ. So it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg there. Yeah. There is also just a lot of speculation about how far along Mueller is in all of this. Right.
1: It's been a while since we got a batch of indictments. Yeah. Oh, wow. So
0: That actually does play into what we're talking about, though, because if there's all this concern about Mueller being either fired or sort of slowly curtailed out of this investigation, yeah. um, we could have... A potential scenario where Mueller's already done more than we know so it's possible that he's already had a grand jury issue sealed indictments for Mm -hmm. various people and it could be big name people it could be um, donald trump jr it could be some of the other names that we all think about with this they might already be out there and if that's true there's not a ton whitaker can do to reel that back in because they would already be in motion with various u.s attorneys Mm -hmm. in these key jurisdictions and that would be really hard for him to roll back so we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens Maybe a little weird to be talking midterm stuff because all the big stuff people already know. Well,
2: most of the big stuff, the, the, the Florida races have gotten very close today. That's true. That's
0: true. And actually, I want to keep talking about Florida, but what I want us to do is talk about um, some of the the ballot initiatives because I think those might have gone mm-hmm. a little under the radar. The law th- at the polls. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good thing for us to talk about. And there was a lot of them. There were 150 ballot measures. Wow. Um, yeah. I think there might have been a few more than that actually. Um, And like I said, I want to talk about Florida. Voters there okayed a constitutional amendment that expands voting rights to most ex-felons in the state.
2: Okay. (laughs) And the immediate question being felons couldn't vote in Florida?
0: Yeah. So it was one of only four states that denied the right to vote to all their former felons until the felons... Petitioned for restoration of those rights, so that to go before this panel. It was, um, it's called the Executive Clemency Board, and the governor and at least two other members of this board had to approve reinstating voter eligibility. And a lot of people said it was done in a very arbitrary way. It was very difficult to get them to reinstate anybody. Yeah, it's like a bureaucratic. It's also just
2: rigmarole. a weird the the entire process, the, the entire concept of. Revoking people's voting rights is a very odd thing to do in a democracy. Yeah, but. and it,
0: it it gets compounded when you then have to go before a board and like plead your case, and they would ask a lot of, um, some people said questionable um, things of these people, like where do you go to church, yeah, that kind of stuff. You, so it gets it gets into some weedy. areas. You're
1: introducing bias through like a bureaucratic right. process, but um okay so ex-felons can vote in Florida now. Like, What does that mean Like, in terms of numbers? It's
0: big. So the vote automatically re-enfranchises more than a million residents in Florida. Um, this is for, just so people know what exactly happened, it's for nonviolent offenders that have obviously completed their sentences, mm-hmm. and that includes everything. It's jail time, parole... Paying back any fines, all of that stuff has to be done, and then they will automatically be allowed to register to vote. Yeah, um, this keeps out still criminals that are convicted of murder or felony sexual assault. They'll have to follow the current protocol of applying individually to that clemency board.
2: Luckily, the I mean, one would think the sample size of people who have completed their sentence and their parole post murder is uh, fairly small. One would <laughs> one would think. Well, well, you never know,
0: but <laughs> yes. But just so it's clear, it's not like, uh, I think people when they hear the word felon, they think, oh, it's people that have done the worst of the worst. So yeah. there's certain types of crimes they still right. have to go through the old process.
2: So like my earlier question, it sort of begs the question, why was Florida doing this? Or like, why why was this the law to begin with? Yeah,
0: I mean, it was a very harsh take on this there's a variety of laws around the country about when people who have been convicted of felonies Mm -hmm. can get their right to vote back but this one was pretty draconian um the aclu has said it was just straight up voter suppression that it barred um, african-american voters at twice the rate of other citizens right and just to give you a sense of how big that is some stats from the state show that 13 percent of all voting age black floridians had lost their right to vote
1: yeah. Wow. I mean, I I even saw some people there there was like uh, Florida area like election experts who had said like the, the amount of people covered that would be liberated by this is like more than the population of some like rural states. Definitely. Which is as much about like the American carceral state as it does about voter suppression. Well,
2: and as we as we said at the up top, the both the Senate, the senatorial and the gubernatorial race in Florida are both. uh Significantly tighter than than those margins, they, so they they tend to be close. Yes. Yeah, so
0: this is a real sea change.
2: Yeah, um, so that was a big deal on the criminal justice front, but there were other uh, criminal justice issues that were on the ballot, and voters weighed in on them Tuesday with sort of mixed mixed results. Um, so. We'll start off with the stuff that that criminal justice reform advocates won on. Mm-hmm. Um, in Louisiana, there was, um, which is, it's going to sound weird, but in Louisiana, the voters approved a constitutional amendment that um, would, <laughs> it would require that, that felony convictions
1: be the result of a unanimous jury verdict. Okay. Uh, now, see, now, when we talk about Amber's thing about how ex-felons couldn't vote in Florida, I did know that some states had provisions that barred ex-felons from voting i full i I will i will admit i fully did not know that there were states where like you you could be convicted with a non-unanimous jury verdict that's crazy it's
2: weird it's one of two states the other being oregon uh that that had this system where you could be convicted of a felony without a unanimous verdict um somewhat unsurprisingly in louisiana it was a uh a a sort of a vestigial um uh, constitutional creature of the jim crow era yeah that um it you know the idea was you, you if you had a mostly white jury and one black person they could vote down that that person. So
1: well, it's just one of those things we never got around to fixing, uh, and now it's it was done so by the voters. Totally. So. And Oregon now, I saw a headline
2: today that um, someone in the state legislature is going to start getting the ball rolling on uh, changing their constitution as well, saying that, you know, that this was also a vestige of, of sort
1: of racist policies, Louisiana leading progressive change ahead of Oregon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't You'll hear that every day. It. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so th- there were some other things, right? Yeah. The other one um,
2: staying in the Pacific Northwest from sure. Oregon um, in Washington state, there was a, a, a package of, of changes approved by voters on Tuesday that are aimed at reducing um, police involved shootings and, uh, the um, they would require more mental health training, more de-escalation training for police officers and it would introduce this new um, you know legal test for figuring out whether a shooting was justified it would it would re- it's this good faith test that that would mm-hmm. make it a little bit more rigorous.
0: This all sounds really great if you are a criminal justice reform advocate, but you said there were a few losses for those people too.
2: Yeah, on the flip side of things um, there was a pretty closely watched, uh, initiative in Ohio, um, that would have reduced many low level drug offenses to misdemeanors. Um, and it would have spent some of the money that was, that would otherwise be spent incarcerating those people and put it into rehabilitation programs and everything else. Uh, that was supported by the ACLU and some other high profile groups that was defeated on Tuesday and in a bunch of other States. And I think in five States, um, different versions of what's called Marcy's law was passed mm-hmm. um, it's named for a college student who was murdered in the 1980s and it was first passed by California it it, it expands what are known as victims rights um, right. it requires tighter tracking of defendants and um, there's this whole set of rights that it gives to um, to victims of crimes um, advocates say that it's necessary for you know th- that, that it's necessary to protect victims um, but groups like the ACLU say that it's, you know, that it, it has all sorts of due process complications and things like that. Overly, like extra punitive. Sort exactly, of thing. exactly. Yeah.
1: Uh, the other big, you know, sort of bucket of items on many ballots across the nation is something we talked about last week uh, with Diana Novak Jones, and it has to do with the legalization of marijuana. Um, there's sort of been a general consensus that the Many states have moved ahead with their own legalization initiatives, and there's a sense that the nation collectively is edging in that direction, and there were some significant victories for people on that side of the fence on Tuesday – um, Michigan, state of Michigan, fully legalized recreational use of marijuana, mm-hmm. um, and voters in Utah and Missouri uh, gave a green light to the use of medical marijuana. Utah, huh? Okay. You
2: don't associate Utah with legalizing <laughs> I marijuana. Know. I know.
1: Th- I thought you needed a like a special permit to have caffeine. Yeah. It's,
0: <laughs> it's, sorry, I don't mean
2: to uh, the, so, all the Utahns out there. Yeah.
0: So it is hard, a little hard these days to keep track. Where are we just sort of? on the national level in terms of what states have done what? What's our tally?
1: Great question. Uh, that's now 33 states that allow for some level of medical marijuana use um, and 10 other states plus the District of Columbia with full legalization. So you're talking about, I mean, you, that, that's 43 out of 50 states that that are, are at least inching toward Legalization or full legalization. So they're adding to
0: the green wave instead of the blue wave of this oh, election. Oh, look at
1: you. Uh, <laughs> Amber's got bars. Um, you know. But as you mentioned, Bill, I mean, it's not just that, oh, a couple other we legalization things passed. It's about which states did them. All three states that I just mentioned, Michigan, Utah, and Missouri, um, were carried by Donald Trump in 2016. Right, it's they becoming— Yeah. I mean, uh, Michigan is no one's idea of like a deep red state, but it is the first Midwestern state to fully to uh, legalize marijuana for recreational use. Um, So it gave advocates a lot of hope that the sea is continuing to change in their favor there.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. There was more than just the ballot initiatives that are giving the marijuana proponents some hope, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, beyond the states that had them on the ballot, there were at least two governors who were elected, um, uh, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois and Tim Waltz in uh, Minnesota. Uh, those states did not have legalization initiatives on the ballot, but both of those governors coming in have like made marijuana legalization core parts of their campaign. So and, it like
0: didn't help hold them back at and, all.
1: It will and, and have said like I will pursue this once I get into office. It's part yeah. of my agenda. Like I will be pushing for legalization in that regard. Um, uh, there was another state that voted on it. North Dakota actually voted down um, a marijuana legalization initiative. But uh Diana, who was with us last week, wrote a story um that you know advocates were even seeing the fact that in a deeply conservative state like that, that just got a new Republican senator, the fact that Um, That initiative made it to the ballot and got 40 percent, which wasn't enough to pass. They thought even like ascending to that level was was a good sign overall.
2: Well, we just talked about uh, we just talked about our our boy Jeff Sessions. Yes. To death. But um, (laughs) you got to think that that him, you know, it's not it's. Say what you will about its correlation to the midterm elections, but I mean him not being the attorney general anymore. I
1: have to think is being celebrated by the marijuana industry. Yeah, it just happened to this this you know happened to occur the day after the uh, the elections. Wink, wink. But yes, Jeff Sessions um, has been extremely hawkish on cracking down on marijuana use uh, and pushing back against legalization efforts. He famously. Um, repealed an Obama era practice that was basically like a stand down, like yeah. don't enforce right. the, the federal memo. laws. Yeah, yeah. don't don't enforce the federal laws against states that have taken steps to legalize. He walked that back. It put a lot of industry folks on edge. Uh, as soon as it would not, as soon as it was announced that he was leaving, <laughs> leaving, left, fired, whatever, <laughs> whatever. We we've been over that. Um, a bunch of like weed industry stock began to began to spike there was like an expectation that this, like, very draconian attitude towards it is going to peel back. Um, besides Jeff Sessions, there was something else that happened um, on midterms and Tuesday. Pete Sessions, no relation, is a congressman in Texas, um, and he lost his re-election bid on Tuesday. Um, and that's important because uh, the House changed hands. it changed the Democrats, and Pete Sessions was the chair of the House Rules Committee. And if you are not if you don't run in real political nerd circles and you want to sound impressive, you can like go on a rant about the importance of being the chair of the House Rules Committee because that means you are in charge of, of of deciding what amendments get attached to like must-pass legislation. Yeah. Yeah. And Pete Sessions, much like Jeff Sessions, was like staunchly anti-cannabis the whole shot. There were always efforts to attach some kind of marijuana liberalization uh, to spending bills and things like that he's not in that job anymore, leaves the door open for uh, that kind of stuff to, uh, to take effect.
0: This election season, major law firms across the country partnered with the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under Law to provide support for voters. Joining us today is an attorney who spearheaded one of those efforts, Janet Friese of Drinker Biddle in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Janet.
3: Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to be on the
0: podcast with you. So there was a lot of concern leading up to this midterm elections about voter suppression and other challenges that could be facing people heading to the polls. What did your firm decide to do about that?
3: Well, um, I, had a, um, I had a longstanding connection with the Lawyers Committee uh, for civil rights under law and um, I was approached by someone from the lawyers committee in June uh, asking me if we would be a call center and um, this is a, uh, a call center for a project called election protection and I um, presented that uh, opportunity to the law firm and I have to say everybody jumped on it with great enthusiasm
1: and what was the nature of these call centers? You were trying to sort of help solve, you know, bureaucratic and kind of technical issues that pop up when people head to the polls. What what exactly was the nature of your work?
3: Well, Election Protection uh, is a, um, a project that provides support and information for voters. And um, at Drinker Biddle, we set up a call center, established a whole trunk line with uh, or over 30, uh, dedicated phone lines. And those, uh, telephones were open to questions from voters all over the country. And boy, did they call. So Janet, uh, what kind uh, of, what kind of issues
2: did you, uh, did you encounter when you were, you know, when, when this was all going down, what, what kind of stuff did you hear on Tuesday?
3: Well, Some of the most common questions were, where do I vote? Where's my polling place? Am I registered to vote? But there were lots of other sorts of questions as well. Uh, People would ask what sort of identification they needed, um, whether they could accompany their mom or their grandmother who didn't speak English fluently to help them with the ballot. Um, uh, They had questions about absentee ballots. They had questions about... um, uh, whether uh, they or they just had all kinds of questions and some of them dealt with some information that they'd been told um, for example you know if you owe money on parking tickets you'll be arrested if you try to vote that sort of thing
0: yeah it sounds like um, it was just a wide range of mostly informational questions did you get any calls during the day of people who'd been turned away from any polls was anybody calling to say like hey they didn't find me in the rolls what do I do
3: Yes, we did. Some people were told that they uh, were just not on the list and were not allowed to vote. And uh, depending on where they were calling from, um, we helped them by finding the appropriate place for them to go, or um, we instructed them on how to request a provisional ballot, but we got all kinds of questions.
1: You definitely don't. N- no one who's listening to this needs us to explain why voting is so important and why voting in the midterms is so important. And, you know, helping people navigate this sometimes confusing process is important work. And it's it's about helping the voters. But I'm we have you on the phone, Janet. I wanted to know um, what sort of your big takeaway um, was from participating this in this. It sounds like it was pretty rewarding. But, you know, from the experience, what would you say uh, you you took away from it?
3: It was a very rewarding experience and I did feel like we were providing real help to people who needed it and that was very satisfying. I also learned that I should never be a telephone operator um, because it was so hectic and um, yes, it was. We had um, to create a ticket for each call. And when a call was finished, we had 90 seconds to finish the ticket before they allowed the next call to come through. So I did feel a little bit like I was a contestant on Beat the Clock. Um, but the um, but the feeling of satisfaction uh, was immense. And I think that all of the people who um, worked very hard at Drinker Biddle to make it happen, our IT department and our um, hospitality department, the receptionist, all the lawyers and paralegals and administrators, everybody really, really um, on board and was part of a, of a great team. And I think everyone really felt like um, they were doing something to help. And that felt great.
0: Janet, it was great to hear about this. I hope a lot of lawyers listening to our show might take some inspiration for the next election we have to help give back to the community. Thanks. Thank you. Guys, we made it to the end of the show!
2: Not the end of the week yet, though. Let's oh, go sure. before something else happens. Sure some really weird stuff is going to happen tomorrow.
0: Well, thanks for being with me, Val.
2: See you again next week, maybe. And Alex. <laughs> thanks.
0: I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, our guest, Janet Friese, and contributing reporters this week, Carolina Bellotto, Diana Novak-Jones, Mike McEnany, and Brandon Lowry. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about and boy was it a lot this week, check out our website at law360.com/podcast and subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks and join us again next week.